Good evening. Scripture this evening comes from Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Nehemiah 1, 1 through 11. I'll give you just a minute to find it. It reads, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was, was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in a great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins with Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servants, Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant, Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at their farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this servant, your servant, and to these prayers of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. You may be seated. Well, I certainly want to be thankful for the good reading tonight out of Nehemiah chapter 1 and for the very fine singing. Thank you, Lynn, for leading us such a fine way and for the prayers and all those who have led us in our worship service tonight. We're very grateful and very happy to have you with us and very happy to have everyone in our audience tonight and grateful for your interest in God's Word that you came to be with us. We are studying one of our Sunday night seminars and, of course, we are discussing the subject of prayer This will be a third lesson that we've had on prayer. What we're doing is taking prayers out of the Bible, certain ones, and analyzing them in the effort to understand the content of the prayer and how to pray in a better way for ourselves. And so this is uh, what I say is a seminar. It's somewhat of a sermon, but it's somewhat of a lecture. It's kind of a combination, and it's a little different format. Uh, You have uh, outlines that I have prepared And these deacons are out here in the auditorium. If you need an outline, just raise your hand, and these men will come by, and they'll make sure that you get a copy of tonight's outline so that you can follow along in the lesson as well. Notice in the outline that you received that it has a rather wide margin on the right-hand side. I did that on purpose so that you could uh, make notations and make some marks that will help you remember these matters, and I hope that you'll file it away and uh, bring that back up when you are studying Nehemiah or studying the subject of prayer, and it'll be of help to you. I hope it will be. 
And I always appreciate the compliments, the kind things that you have to say with regard to uh, the seminar and our efforts in trying to study God's Word and make it applicable to our lives. The first uh, seminar on prayer, the lesson on prayer that we had, was the privilege of prayer. It came from Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. And you'll notice those verbs that we studied there. Spent some special time looking at the grammar of the passage, ask, seek, knock, and the significance of that in prayer. Then last Sunday night was our second lesson on prayer in our seminar. We were looking at Solomon's prayer, 1 Kings chapter 3. And what a remarkable prayer that was. He prays to God for wisdom that he might have an understanding heart to rule and lead and judge properly God's people. And God said, I'm going to give you that understanding heart. But I'm also going to give you the, the riches and, and the lives of your enemies and longevity of life yourself. And it was a tremendous lesson that comes from 1 Kings 3 about prayer. And we did our very best to study its elements and to consider it faithfully tonight. Uh, we have a tremendous man of prayer to study tonight. His name is Nehemiah. comes from the pages of the Bible that we seldom study. It's an Old Testament book of history. But it tells us a great deal, and I thought, well, let me take a brief moment and look at the background of this passage, and let's uh, fill in some of the historical blanks so that when we do get to the text itself, it'll have more meaning for us. So let's do that, and if you'll indulge me just for a moment, I promise to be brief, but this is what's going on in the lives of Israel at this time. You have two great nations that are vying for power. One of them is Assyria. Because of God's people being unfaithful, the ten northern tribes were taken by Assyria and ultimately taken and destroyed in 721 B.C. Uh, not long after the Assyrian Empire comes and falls, does the Babylonian Empire arise and becomes a very powerful world leader. Uh, because of God's southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, his people are unfaithful also and refuse to listen to the instruction which had been given to them through prophets of God. God chastised them as well. And the final destruction took place in 586 B.C. These are two important dates with regard to Old Testament history. 721, the north is conquered. 586, the south is conquered. The south, those carried away into Babylonian captivity. There they stayed for 70 years. Jeremiah talks about that, Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 1, about the 70-year captivity. There, while in that captivity, of course, they, coming to the conclusion of that, want to go home. And so God, in His mercy, decides to let His people out of captivity from Babylon and to go home. In the meantime... Persia overtakes Babylon. And now the Babylonian Empire has come to an end, and in turn the Persian Empire has begun. And so during this Persian period of world domination, and they had dominated the ancient Near East, a huge portion of the world, these events begin to take place. If you want to know what life was like in the Persian Empire, you'd read the book of Esther. And how God providentially preserved his people during this time. And you'll remember the story of Esther and Haman and Mordecai. And how God helped them along that line. Uh, some interesting elements come from that. It is during the times of, um, of Ezra 
that the first group of Jews go back to Jerusalem to build the temple. This is under the leadership of a man by the name of Zerubbabel and Joshua. They go back. They're rebuilding the temple. They're starting all over again. And God's wonderful grace and kindness is upon them and giving them the opportunity to start all over again and becomes an important part of Jewish history. It's during this time that you have the discussion in the book of Esther taking place. But also, there's a second going back, and Ezra takes them back. That's about Ezra chapter 7 through chapter 10 of that Old Testament book. The third going back takes place now in Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is cupbearer to the Persian king Artaxerxes, who would be the stepson of Esther. And so the history is very interesting if we took the time to look at it and discuss it and consider it carefully. If we just pick up Nehemiah chapter 1, it's not going to mean much to us. But Nehemiah means a great deal more to us now as far as a man of prayer once we kind of fill in some of the historical blanks and some of the background that moves us along. God's allowing his people to go back. And as was read tonight, here this man is cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah has such a prominent position. He's sort of like a Joseph to Pharaoh, or a Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, or an Esther. Uh, Here's Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king. You know, the cupbearer was the one who would taste the food and, and would test the drink of the king to see that it would not be poisoned. Only very trusted people would be appointed, uh, would be appointed a cupbearer. And God raised Nehemiah up for such a position as this, just as he had raised up a Joseph, just as he had raised up a Daniel, just as he had raised up an Esther. Now in our study tonight, he's raised up a Nehemiah. And the king says to Nehemiah, why? Why is your countenance fallen? Why do you look so sad? And he said, well, it's because I've heard from my people back in Jerusalem. I've heard from them that things have gone badly. It's not going well, and I feel so bad for my people. And Artaxerxes, this old Persian king, he says, what would you have me to do? And immediately, he prays. The first thing he does, prays to God. Let's look a little bit more about Nehemiah before I study this prayer tonight. When you look at Nehemiah, you see a man of prayer. I tried to emphasize some of that in our study. Notice in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 4. Then the king said to me, what are, your, what are you requesting? And he said, so I prayed to the God of heaven. He's a man that could sp- pray on the spur of the moment. He was never too busy to pray. Turn with me to chapter 4. Chapter 4 of Nehemiah, verses 1 through 6. He's praying for the deliverance of the reproach of others. You have these who will not work with them. They won't have anything to do with each other. There's Sanballat and Tobiah and Gershom. They actually make ridicule of the work that's taking place there with Nehemiah and his efforts to build the wall. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up against it, he will break down their stone wall. Notice the prayer of Nehemiah. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. 
You notice also in this chapter 4, about verse 7, he's praying in that regard to overcome the anger of the enemies that uh, his people are facing. So we built the wall, verse 6, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. There's a great lesson there. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were, were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Verse 9, you know, it, he prays with every opportunity in every situation. He's an individual who truly does believe in prayer. I reference chapter 6 of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, once again, is talking about the intruders who try to undo them and undo their work. And there he says, For they all wanted to frighten us, verse 9, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. And he begins to pray to God, Give us help. Strengthen us against the intruders. I love Nehemiah chapter 8 because all the people by that time are brought together and they prepared a pulpit of wood and Nehemiah stands on that pulpit and reads the word of God. And as you read down through Nehemiah chapter 8, they pray to God when the reading of the word takes place. And then turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. In the ninth chapter of Nehemiah, and I'll not have the time to go through and pick out these beautiful verses But there he talks about the goodness of God and how God has blessed them. And he's praying to God all through this particular matter. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. There's a beautiful passage there in Nehemiah chapter 13 that we dare not uh, forget and we we ought to remember. Let me take just a moment out of chapter 13 because I love it so much. In Nehemiah chapter 13 he says in verse 14, Remember me, O my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Notice he says this matter in verse 22. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor. O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your uh, steadfast love. He goes on in verse 29. And he words a prayer there. Remember them, O my God because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. In the very last verse of the book, verse 31, And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. He prays and he prays and he prays, regardless of the situation, regardless of the circumstances. Here is a man who spends a great deal of time to God in prayer. And you have men, great men of the Bible like Daniel, where the angel came to Daniel and said, Daniel, you're greatly beloved by God. You have great men in the Bible like uh, Joseph, great women in the Bible like Esther. But here we study tonight a great man of God by the name of Nehemiah that we don't study as much as we should. And we should come to know well the life of Nehemiah. And I picked out one of these prayers for us to study in our Sunday night seminar tonight on prayer. And it's the prayer that's found for us in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through verse 11. And I want to spend just a few moments talking about that this evening. You have the notes before you. And we'll look at this particular matter as we study tonight Nehemiah, a man of prayer, one who truly loved prayer, 
Prayer was an important part of his life. The first thing I see in Nehemiah's prayer is his conception of God. This is important. He has the right kind of conception. Notice verse 4 and verse 5. He understands God well. And that's something that should be a part of our prayer life. As soon as I heard these words, what words? The words about the difficulty his brethren are having back in Jerusalem. Uh, He's in what's called Persia now. He's in captivity. He will come out of captivity by God's help. But he hears what's happened at the going back of the first and the second group of Jews going back to Jerusalem to start all over again. As soon as I heard these words... I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued steadfasting in prayer before the God of heaven. And I said, O God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He had a proper understanding of God. And even though I have a number of points that I saw in this discussion about Nehemiah's prayer and I'll not be able to say a lot about each one of them tonight. Let me just look basically at each point and then make a comment or, or so, and then the point will be yours. He understands God. So many times people don't. So many times they've never taken the study to f- see what God is like in the pages of the Bible. They have their concept. I suppose everyone has some kind of concept about God. But is it an accurate concept? Is it true? Is it real? Is really God like that, the one we have in our minds? The only way for us to understand it properly is for us to compare our thoughts with the Scripture. Do our thoughts compare? Do they line up with the Scripture with regard to what the Scripture teaches about God? If they do not, we need to change our understanding and change our concept. Sometimes people have the concept about God that He's sort of an old doting grandfather rocking in his rocking chair, just wanting to pass out favors to his grandchildren. And sometimes people think about God like that. But he, here, Nehemiah has the right concept of God. Not a superficial, shallow concept, but he recognizes the greatness of God and the power of God and the goodness of God. And those concepts truly go together. Oh, Lord God of heaven, he's the creator of the world in which we live who keeps covenant with steadfa- and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. You can count on God. When God makes a promise, you know God's going to see it through. And it doesn't really matter whether God made the promise a thousand years ago or day before yesterday. God's going to bring that promise to fulfillment in His good time and in His good way because He is steadfast and sure. And you can count on God. When God says something, you know it's true. When God says something in the Scripture, you know it's right, and it's going to be just the way God said. I've noticed even some preachers will come up and say, well, you know, I know what God says about this, but maybe God will make some kind of uh, a change or exception or something like that in the Word. Uh, I know what the Word says. I know this is what the Word condemns. But maybe God will make an exception. After all, He is God. And God uh, uh, can do whatever he chooses to do. Well, God's not going to break his word. God's not going to break his covenant. God's going to do what he said he would do. He's a great God, an awesome God. And that's the first thing that I see in the life of this man of prayer. He has a proper concept of God. And I'll tell you this right now. You can spend the rest of your life studying this one subject. The God of the Bible. You will never be able to exhaust it. 
You'll never be able to come to all of an understanding or complete and thorough understanding of everything about God. He's just too great. If you went to the pages of the Bible, you might look and find out, well, what passage really defines God? And there's no real one passage in the Bible that just says, God is this. But there are a multiplicity of passages in the Bible that talk about God is this, and God is love, and God is that, and God will do this, and it gives us a full and complete picture as much as we can understand with regard to the nature of God. But there is no one verse in the Bible that just tells us everything about God. And the point that I'm trying to make is this. God and the concept of God is too great. It would take the rest of our lives, and you can devote your life to the study of the God of the Bible and never exhaust the content and the concept. But one thing is for sure. We better have a proper concept of God in our heart and our mind. We better understand it just as best as we possibly can based upon the scriptures that we've been given. And Nehemiah did that. He had a proper concept of God. When he goes before God to pray, he understands something of the great triune God of heaven and earth. And he describes him in this wonderful fashion. Well, I'd like to spend all of my time on that wonderful subject, but I want to go on to verse 6. Because once again, I see another point that we've visited before. He has this unwearied persistence in prayer. He goes to God in prayer over and over and over again. He says in verse 6, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, for your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I come before you day and night praying. Over and over I'm praying. He's persistent in prayer. One of the things we learned about the matter of Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, one of the first lessons that we had upon, about prayer in our seminar is the need to keep on asking and the need to keep on knocking, the asking and seeking and, not, and keep on asking and keep on seeking and keep on knocking. It's not that God wants us to just keep on for the sake of asking. But we need to for the sake that we don't value the gift that God has to offer. We need to grow in our appreciation and value of the prayer that God does answer. Now I want you to notice just a little bit about this particular matter. He's very earnest in his devotion uh, to God and prayer. And he prays day and night. But when was this prayer offered? In verse 1, it says, the, son, the words of Nehemiah, the sons of Hekeliah, now it happened in the month of Kislu. Now, the month of Kislu is around November, December. But the prayer is not really answered until we get to Nehemiah chapter 2. And I believe there's a specific incident and reason for identifying the month and the time of the year. Now it's in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So the prayer was actually offered several months before in the previous year. 
And then now in the next year, at the beginning of the next year, in the month of Nisan, is the prayer actually answered. And you go through Nehemiah chapter 2, and you see how that God answered the prayer in His providential way, and that Artaxerxes allows Nehemiah, his cupbearer, a very trusted member of the court, to go back and build the walls of Jerusalem, the city walls. It's an amazing thing. It shows something of the trust that Artaxerxes had in Nehemiah. The point that I'm making is here, Nehemiah prays day and night for this. But God didn't answer that prayer right off the bat. God didn't answer that prayer the next week or the next month. God answered that prayer the next year. At the beginning of the next year, he answered that prayer. And sometimes, you know, that's the way it is. Sometimes God answers prayer and he says, wait a while. When the time is right, then that prayer will be answered in God's good way and in God's good time. You see something of the enthusiasm of this man. I'm praying in behalf of your people, and I'm praying and I'm praying. Let me go ahead and quickly make a third point here. The contrition of his heart. Oh, how sincere this man is in his prayers. Is there not a lesson in that for us? I'll go back and pick up verse 6 again. I want to add to it the reading of verse 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. What's he doing in that prayer? Lord, forgive us of our sins. He has a contrite heart here. And he's saying, now the people have been guilty. I've been guilty. Me and my father's house, we've been guilty. We have not been faithful in remembering to keep the rules and the statutes and the commandments which you gave Moses. You know, one thing that's going to hinder our prayer life And that's sin. If we harbor sin in our life, how can we expect God to answer our prayers? One of the important matters which this man prays about is forgiveness of his sins. Turn with me to a few passages of Scripture that teach this point so straightforwardly. In Psalm 66, I happen to think of this particular passage and perhaps... You remember it as well. 66, it's about verse 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Psalm 66, 18. If I harbor a sin in my heart, God's not going to listen to my prayer. And I suppose this passage in Isaiah 59 is probably one of the classic texts along this particular point. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah, verse 59, you'll want to mark this in your Bible. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He does not hear. The Bible's very consistent in this matter. That if we harbor sin in our life, God's not going to listen to our prayers. One of the things that we see with regard to the matter of Nehemiah is, Lord, forgive us of our sins. That should be in every one of our prayers. Lord, let us 
repent of those sins. Help us to repent. And please forgive us as we determine in our heart never to do them again. And it's an important element that we should keep in mind. You know, one of the interesting points about this, I'm reminded of the book of Job. How that Job had his three friends who came to him. Job suffering agonizingly and, and he's suffering in such a horrible way. And his three friends who turn out to be, according to Job, miserable comforters. They just didn't have anything to do. They denounced Job as a sinner. And they say, Job, surely you're a sinner. Look at how you're suffering in this terrible, uh, horrific way. Yet, at the same time, they think of themselves as being righteous. Job, you're suffering. You're a sinner. But we aren't suffering like that. Therefore, we must be righteous before God. I wonder how many times we pay the three friends of Job a high compliment by emulating their attitude about ourselves. I don't have anything to pray for forgiveness about. I don't have any sins that I've committed that I should be praying to God. Here this great man of God who is so well trusted by our Xerxes the king says, Lord, we committed sin. The people have committed sin. Me, my father and I, we have committed sin. We have failed to keep your law. And he prays for the forgiveness of those sins. If I'm learning anything about the matter of prayer, I need to learn about my need to ask God for his forgiveness. And may I add to that this important element, that it is the child of God's privilege to pray, that he can go before God our Father through Jesus Christ, our mediator, and ask for the forgiveness of sins because that individual has repented of sin and has been baptized into Christ and is striving to live the Christian life. Now, that person who is doing that will commit sin from time to time. And it may be that they just throw their hands up and say, I quit, and quit serving God altogether. But that individual could come to himself like a prodigal and there realize how he needs to come back to God and repent, and God will forgive him. I believe that even a Judas Iscariot, if he had gone back to Christ and said, please forgive me for what I have done, the Lord would have forgiven him, but Judas would not. He wouldn't admit his sin. And that's like a lot of us. We fail to admit our sin. We need to repent. We need to go before God and pray for forgiveness based on our repentance of sin, else God will not hear our prayer. It is a hindrance to us. There is the strong argument. I put it this way, strong argument. I don't want you to get the wrong idea by my wording. I looked at verses 8 through 10, and I thought, he's making a strong argument here. He's making a strong case. He's not arguing with God. I certainly don't mean that idea. By argument, I mean he's presenting his case. He's reminding of God of these particular matters. Not that God needs reminding. But he's bringing this up before God. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying. If you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. Verse 9. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're out... Your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. What is the argument that Nehemiah is making in his prayer before God? 
Lord, you promised this. If we'll be faithful, you promised to bless us. Lord, we're asking you to bless us now. We're repenting of our sins and we're turning back to you and we're promising to be faithful. Therefore, bless us in your wonderful way like you've said. Now, we know you said if you turn from me and and are not faithful, then naturally, if we forget you, there in turn you will not bless us. But we're now turning back to you. I love studying from the Old Testament. If you can tell already, I love these Old Testament passages. They're written for our example and for our learning. I thought of Ezekiel chapter 14. Now, as they said, I'll give you a minute to find Ezekiel because seldom do we ever study Ezekiel. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands asking you when was the last time you read Ezekiel or studied through the book of Ezekiel because few people ever go to this part of the Bible and study it. But I want to read for you by means of illustration what Nehemiah is doing in Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel chapter 14, they're in the prison camp. And if we studied the beginning of Ezekiel, we see Ezekiel and the people of God are out in the prisoner of war camp by the river Kibar. And now he has these great visions. Ezekiel's a great book. But notice what happens here. In Ezekiel 14 and 1, Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me. Now, these elders of Israel, probably prominent Jews that were there in, in the captivity, and they're probably coming to Ezekiel and asking Ezekiel, how long is this captivity going to last? When can we go home? But immediately as they come to Ezekiel, God comes to Ezekiel by means of revelation. And the word of the Lord came to me, verse 2, Son of man, These men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, verse 4, Thus says the Lord God, Anyone of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols." Verse 5, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. What's the point? There's no need going to God when our heart is filled with sin. There's no need in going to God and praying to God when we won't repent of our sins and turn to God out of obedient faith. Now his point here in Nehemiah is, Lord, we know that you promise to be good, to bless those who are faithful. We're turning it over to you. It's not like in the days of Ezekiel when they harbored the idols of the land in their hearts rather than following you. We are praying to you that you will help us in this day. This is his strong argument. It's a sound argument. It's an argument which is saying, if we remain faithful to God, God will bless us. He'll hear this prayer, and he'll answer this prayer in his way, in his time. Then there's another point that I would like to make, and I think it almost goes without saying, but it comes up in this first chapter, and I certainly do not want to miss it. It's in verse 11 for us, and this prayer, all these prayers are very personal, aren't they? Very personal prayers. He says in verse 11, O Lord, Nehemiah 1, 
Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This man is Artaxerxes. Lord, I have an opportunity here to go before Artaxerxes and petition for your people. Let it be successful. Lord, I'm praying. I'm praying for myself, but I'm also praying for these people. A lot of times we're that way. We don't pray for others. We only pray for ourselves. James chapter 4, verse 3, talks about that particular matter. Nehemiah understands. I'm going to go before the king, this old pagan Persian king, and he's going to give me an opportunity. May we be successful, Heavenly Father, as we come before him and for your people. He's praying for others. A very unselfish prayer. Praying in behalf of God's people and for himself. There's a lot to be learned from the prayer life of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 11. One of the things I want to remember in this matter of personal prayer. I don't want to just say memorize little platitudes that I've said over and over again before God. I want my prayer to be a personal prayer. I want it to come from the depth of my heart. I don't want to be praying something that I've just said over and over and over again. Like the little boy who wrote his prayer out and put it to the headboard of his bed when he went to sleep at night. He told God, he said, now them's my sentiments, and went off to sleep. You see, that kind of rote, memorized prayer doesn't get any far, anywhere. It's not a personal prayer. If we just go through a prayer routine that's been said over and over and over the same way, a type of vain repetition, what good is that? Prayers of the Bible are personal prayers that we offer to God in behalf of others as well, an intercessory type of prayer as we see in this case here. One thing I want to keep in mind, I want to keep in mind the proper concept of God as we've talked a little bit, a little bit about it tonight. We need to be persistent. We need to be penitent. We need to be unselfish in heart. And therefore, our prayers will be answered. If I had time tonight, I'd study with you Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And you see how that God answered his prayer later on, the beginning of the next year, with Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The end of the story is Nehemiah is allowed to go back. Nehemiah goes back and they build the wall around the city of Jerusalem. Now, isn't that an interesting thing? That the administrative seat of Persia allows these people to go back. Now, to build a wall around the city would naturally create the idea of a defensive measure. A defensive measure against whom? Artaxerxes could have easily looked upon this thing as, you know, this is a rebellious act. These Jews want to go back to Jerusalem and build themselves back up to be in opposition to us and the Persian Empire and try to wage war against us and refuse the rule of Persian law, the law of the Medes and the Persians. But he didn't look at it that way at all. He looked at it as this is an opportunity to help this great man of God and the people of God go back to their land, rebuild the wall, and reestablish themselves as God promised he would allow them to do. Oh, the power of prayer. What a wonderful subject we have before us. And I hope and pray that our efforts will cause you to grow in your prayer life. Make it more personal. Make it more biblical. 
from the heart for the needs being expressed to God Almighty, recognizing that he will answer our prayers in his good way and in his good time. But as I intimated earlier in our lesson tonight, prayer is the privilege of the child of God. If you're not a child of God, I hope you become one. To repent of your sins and confess your faith in Christ and be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. And I hope you'll do it now. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.